0: I came across a fascinating book recently that that speaks to what we're talking about here tonight. Uh, Even though this book is a few years old, it's titled The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. It's by a guy named uh, Andrew Delbanco, who's a professor of literature at Columbia University. And in this book, he makes the case that at the heart of every culture is this concept of a main hope. That every human culture has a main hope and promotes that hope to its people, a particular culture's main hope is the specific message it gives its people about what it is that makes life really worth living, what makes our existence meaningful, what life is really all about. Whatever that is said to be is that culture's main hope, according to him. And he traces this idea down through the centuries uh, in American civilization, over the past 300 years or so. And he identifies what he believes was the main hope in each of three eras of our nation's history. I wonder if you can guess what they are. In sequence, they are God, nation, and self. He writes this, in the first era... Hope was chiefly expressed through a Christian story, a story that gave meaning to both suffering and pleasure alike and promised deliverance from death. Uh, In that era of our nation's history, life was generally assumed to be a gift from God, right? Life was to be lived under God's care and under his watchful eye, and it was generally believed that an account would be given by each person to God one day. So there was a certain God-centered orientation in our culture during that phase, but all of that got superseded when the Enlightenment era came on the scene. The second phase, which the author writes, removed a personal God and substituted for him the idea of a deified nation instead. Those older ideas about the sacredness of God got transferred to our country so that America began to see itself as a redeemer nation whose system of government and way of life was really the hope for the whole world. Del Banco believes this second era lasted for about 150 years up until about the mid-1960s, at which time that hope began to be eclipsed by yet a newer one, the hope of the autonomous self. So you see the progression here from God to country, to self, to me. Beginning at that cultural moment, mid-60s or so, the older flag-waving America First mindset was discarded by many in the younger generation. And what our existence really became all about now is creating the best life for yourself through expressing unhindered personal freedom. That's the new main hope, he contends, of this era that we're living in now. So from God first in the 1600s and 1700s up into the early 1800s to America first, the 1800s up into the late 1900s, to me first, now here in the 21st century. Delbanco contends that we are now living in the age of personal, individual autonomy and unhindered self-determination. This has become the new main hope and the highest value of the culture that we live in. I've heard it called the sovereignty of self. So what do you think? Do you think he's close? Do you think he's right on? At that point in his book, he wasn't really super sure where to direct us as far as a remedy is concerned. He acknowledged that putting self in the place of God leads to all kinds of dysfunctions. Even that going back to substituting the nation for God only ends up leading to cultural imperialism. We're better than everybody else. And so he says, perhaps we should all strive to go back to being more religious. And that seems to be where he lands. I would make the case that the main hope for today's Western culture is the freedom of individuals to choose your own main hope apart from any constraints imposed upon you by other people. That's the ultimate in individual autonomy, right? That's the ultimate expression of self-sovereignty. I am my own God, and I can choose whatever I want as my hope-giving reason for existing in my life. Tim Keller, in this very book, actually, comments on this reality. He wrote this, When we are completely immersed in a society of people who consider a particular idolatrous attachment to be normal, it becomes almost impossible to discern it for what it is. Any dominant cultural hope that is not God himself is actually, he says, a counterfeit God. So then as followers of Jesus which I know most, maybe all of us are here tonight, to put our main hope in God and not ourselves, to actually cast aside self as a counterfeit God, and to be convinced that God is at the center of the universe and not humanity, and that He's sovereign over all things, that's going to look different than the rest of the culture, that's going to buck the trend, isn't it? That's going to be swimming upstream in this culture against the flow of our man-centered, individualistic culture. I got to thinking about this a little bit when I heard about some of the Golden Globe speeches that were given the other night and just the whole vibe of, of those kinds of events. And I thought, what if some notable star upon receiving their award there, got up to the podium and said something like this. You know, when you think about it, none of us really have that much to brag about, really. I mean, everything we have in terms of our talents and our creative ability, not to mention our very lives, come from God. It's really to God that we should all be directing our praise and honor tonight. He's more worthy of being celebrated than any of us. Our achievements in this realm of art and film might be noteworthy, and certainly there's some merit to what we've accomplished, but the reality is that what God has accomplished in creating this incredibly complex and stunning universe that we live in, in redeeming a people for himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, That's what should be supremely celebrated. What God has done should not only lift us to our feet in applause, but it should bring us down on our knees in humble worship and adoration. In fact, let's all just do that right now. (laughs) How do you think that would go over at the Golden Globe Awards? (laughs) I think that celebrity would probably get booed off the stage, right? What in the world? You know what? If you live like that, If you live your life for the glory of God, rather than the glory of self, some people are likely going to view you as strange. You might seem a bit odd, a bit peculiar, a bit foolish to some. That's what this series is all about here at the the start of 2018. It's about following Jesus into a lifestyle that goes against the cultural current, right? It's about being called out of this world as the special people of God, being set apart by Him and sanctified through the work of His Spirit, and then being sent back into the world to represent Him to the people of the world, to spread His message. This series is about living out our new identity in Jesus Christ as those people whom He has called to be salt, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It's about demonstrating a distinctive lifestyle in this world that does stand out a little bit. It's about being in the world, for the world, but not of the world. That's what we've been talking about. When I read Delbanco's work regarding the the dominant main hope of our culture being individual autonomy, being self-sovereignty, that we're all the masters of our own fate and we can create our own awesome life, where my mind went was to the Bible and specifically to one of the Psalms in the Bible, Psalm 90. And if you have a copy of the scriptures with you or on your device, go to Psalm 90. That's where we're going to be tonight because it's there that I find a perspective, an outlook, a countercultural orientation for life that stands in stark contrast to the spirit of this age that we live in. It's just different. What we find in this psalm is not a man-centered orientation, but a God-centered orientation. And so to help us along this journey of bucking the trend, I think the Lord would have our mindset be shaped and molded by this word of His today, rather than by the prevailing mindset of our culture. And so let's look at this for a few moments. This psalm, Psalm 90, interestingly, was not penned by David the famous psalmist, but rather it's the only psalm said to be written by Moses, the great prophet of God. And if you're familiar with the story of Moses and how he was chosen by God to be his instrument to lead God's people, the children of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, then through all of their wilderness wanderings, remember that? For many, many years... If you're familiar with that story, you'll probably be able to find some veiled references to those occurrences in what he wrote here, what we call Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, it says, the man of God. Let me read it to you. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Psalm of Moses. As Sinclair Ferguson noted in his commentary, it's, it's not hard to imagine Moses gathered there with that great company of the children of Israel after years and years and years of wandering around in the desert wilderness, but now finally on the brink of entering that promised land. They'd seen their God do miraculous things, hadn't they? To sustain them along their journey, but they'd also grieved the loss of thousands upon thousands of their parents and grandparents who had all died off in the wilderness, an entire generation missing out on experiencing the promise because they failed to trust the God of their covenant. Even Moses himself would not be allowed to enter due to his own trying of God's patience. But oh, in this psalm we see how he longed for the favor of the Lord to return to his people. Oh, how he lamented the sins that had resulted in so many lives being lost. And oh, how he saw God, perhaps now more than ever, as the source of their very lives, the ultimate satisfier of their souls, their main hope, if you will he begins by lifting his eyes to heaven and making a solemn declaration. In essence, declaring, the Lord alone is the eternal God and he is sovereign over human existence. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth. Wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And if you know your Bible history, you were aware that beginning with the days of Abraham, God's people, Israel, had always been nomads, (laughs) right? They'd always been pilgrims. They were always traveling around, sojourners, dwelling in many different places. For the last 40 years, Moses had led them on this circuitous journey all throughout the desert wilderness, setting up camp numerous times in numerous places out under the night sky. But now, pausing to reflect on all that and writing down his thoughts, he says, Yahweh, no matter where we've been, no matter what our geographic location, you've been with us each step of the way, no matter where we set up camp, in the hills, on the mountains, in the plains, whether we were in friendly territory or surrounded by Enemies on all sides, you have been our constant home, our dwelling place. Remember, during that era, they would set up the tabernacle right in the midst of their camp. And God would manifest His presence among them in stunning, stunning ways. That Shekinah glory cloud was a visible reminder every day and every every night that their covenant God lived right there among them. He was right there. Yahweh, for generations, your people have made their abode in your presence. They found their rest in you. And we too, as the new covenant people of God, can say the same thing, can't we? No matter where we go, our God is right there with us. I've been in India, and I've been in Africa, and I've been in other places of the world, and you know what? In those places as well as here, I could lift up my eyes to heaven and pray to the Lord and sense His presence. That he was right there with me, wherever you go. If you know the Lord, He is with you. And so you can say what Moses said. You have been my dwelling place, Lord, throughout all of my generation. But then Moses reached back even further than the founding of his nation, the nation of Israel, and he begins to exult in God's eternal nature, that God had always existed—not just for a few generations, but even prior to creation itself, before the mountains were brought forth. He says, and it's, it's uh, the idea is of giving birth, brought forth. Before you birthed the mountains, before you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. One commentator marveled, this is the highest description of the eternity of God to which human language can reach. We see Moses here rejoicing in the fact that he he knew that Yahweh never had a beginning and will have no end. Although it was he who in this sense gave birth to all of creation, he himself had no birth, no birthday. He just always was. Yahweh, the eternally self-existent God The uncaused cause of everything else, right? But interestingly now, by contrast, we see Moses turn his attention from declaring the eternal existence of God now to contemplating the temporal existence of man. And it's quite a contrast. Verse 3, "'You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man.'" You've heard the phrase dust to dust. This harkens back to the story of the fall and, and the curse on Adam and Eve's sin that brought death. And in Genesis 3.19 it says, From dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Made from dust, returning to dust in death. Verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight. It's Talking about the Lord now thousand years in your cider but as yesterday when it's passed or as a watch in the night this thousand years which seems like a really long time to us perhaps is a a reference to the longest human lifespan moses could imagine since adam and eve and others up until the time of the flood lived to be nearly a thousand years old what's the age of the oldest man recorded who ever lived do you know Methuselah. Remember his age when he died? 969, I believe it was. That's almost a thousand years. Can you imagine living that long? (laughs) Perhaps Moses was thinking of Methuselah when he penned this phrase. And he's saying, look, in God's way of reckoning, even a 1,000 years of our time, like 1,000 A.D. to 2,000 A.D., which to us seems like, oh my, that's a long time, to God seems about like a day, like yesterday. Or a watch in the night, and in the Hebrew thinking, there were three watches in the night. They were about three hours, you know. 1,000 years seems like a few hours to God. Verse 5, you sweep them away. He's talking about men. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're, They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. And then in the evening, it's because of the heat of the desert sun, it fades and withers. So these references he makes here are to human life being very short in comparison with God's eternal existence. His mention of sweeping people away in a flood speaks of God's sovereign power over human life, right? And it evokes those dramatic images of humanity being wiped out by the Lord in Noah's flood. What's his point? We're not sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. It's ultimately God who determines whether we live or or don't live. Verse 7, for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. This is one of the works of God, by the way, to bring that which is concealed into the light. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end with a sigh I think this recollection in Moses' mind comes from that experience of watching the Lord's anger kindled against the children of Israel again and again and again in the wilderness because of their constant, incessant whining and disobedience during those 40 years. Remember all that? We don't like the food you're providing, we don't like the leader you gave us. It's hot out here. Are we there yet? Manna again? Oh, why can't we go back to Egypt where we had it so good? The garlic back there was really good. Why can't you be a better God? Moses had watched as a, a holy God who had been, was being rejected by his own people that he had delivered out of slavery, who, who became offended by their sins, dealt severely with those people, And by one calculation, as many as 1.2 million of the older generation were struck down in the prime of their lives for their constant sinning. And so here, Moses is acknowledging that the wrath of God is a fearful thing. And when God judges people for their sins, it is devastating. So this is Moses' perspective as he opens up this psalm. The Lord alone is the eternal God, and he is sovereign over human existence. Speaking of human existence, Moses then meditates for a few moments on that subject. The second point of this psalm is that human existence <clears throat> excuse me, is fleeting and fragile and also futile when we fail to see life from God's perspective. this is so true isn't it verse 10 he says the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80 some people are on borrowed time right (laughs) they're living on grace yet he says their span is but toil and trouble you know most people viewed life up until the last century or so most people viewed life as being full of trouble being hard <laughs> and then he says but they are soon gone and we fly away maybe you've wondered where the lyrics to that old gospel song came from I'll fly away oh glory right here for Moses we fly away you know since the flood human lifespans have shrunk dramatically from nearly a 1,000 years down to, he says, 70 or 80 years on average, and that's roughly still true. Some people make it to 90. But as he says, our years can be full of hardship. Certainly that was his experience. And and then after decades of hard work and toil, you wake up one day to find that most of your years are now behind you, and death, and then flying away into eternity is what's ahead, what waits for you. That's a very sobering perspective, isn't it? But we're unwise, I think, to just dismiss this as ancient or as morbid. There's much wisdom to be had in considering the brevity of life here on this earth, as we'll see in a moment. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger, speaking of God, and your wrath according to the fear of you? And then verse 12, kind of the pinnacle of, of this psalm. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. A couple of years back, our ministry staff went away on a prayer retreat. And on that retreat, I I took them through a very fun exercise. At least that's how I viewed it. Based on this verse right here, teach us to number our days. So I was taking our crew through this exercise, and I remember it didn't seem to go over very well. There wasn't much enthusiasm. So I'm going to give you the questions that I asked them and see if you can tell why it wasn't a big hit. It's kind of an inventory, a life inventory based on this verse teach us to number our days. So here's the questions I asked them How many days have you lived so far? You know, that's a real number you can calculate. You can get your phone out. You can calculate how many days you've lived here on this earth. Then I said, calculate how many days you have left to live if you live to be 85 years old. I took Moses' number and added five just for grace. Calculate how many days you have left on the earth if you live to be 85 years old. Then I said, if your final two years end up being pretty non-functional, How many functioning days would you estimate you have left? How does seeing that number make you feel? Can you see why they weren't really that enthused? Describe what you would consider to be a life well lived at the end of those days. What would you want most said about you at your funeral service? Who would you love to know said those things? What wisdom do you think can be gained by numbering our days? I mean, I just don't know why they didn't respond enthusiastically. I thought it was a pretty stimulating exercise. Actually, it's a pretty sobering thing, don't you think, to conduct this kind of honest assessment of our lives. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. There is wisdom that can be gained, Moses is saying, from taking a brutally honest personal inventory of our lives, of our days, how we've spent them, how many we've wasted, which ones were full of joy and why, and even how many days we might have left to live on this earth if the Lord tarries, and how to... Best leverage them for the greatest good. I know people who go away on a retreat every year, a personal retreat every year for the express purpose of praying through and contemplating these kinds of things. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I think there's wisdom in doing this for people who are in their 20s and 30s, young people who otherwise might be prone to think that life is always going to be like it is right now. We who've passed those milestones could say, no, life changes. It's not always going to be like it is right now. That's why there's great value for those who are in that very busy life stage. When you're in your 20s and 30s and work is demanding and you've got lots of kids and you're shuttling kids all over the place all the time, and you wonder, is this ever going to end There's great value for those in that life stage to develop some relationships with people who are ahead of you and are in a later life stage, older generations, to inquire of them, to ask them to tell you stories about their life, to listen and to learn. I believe there's wisdom in doing this kind of assessment for those who are in their 40s, who are approaching halftime of their lives. Or maybe they're already in the locker room looking at film of the first half, reviewing it, because this could be the time to make some little adjustments or even major course corrections while you still can so that the second half of your life is more on target with God's overall game plan for you. And of course, we know that the game is won or lost in the second half. There's wisdom in inventorying your life when you're in your 50s, which I used to think was old and now I think is quite young. It's this season which can be a transition season into that challenging season we call empty nest. You know what that is, right? The kids are all grown up now and they've kind of moved on. They have their own lives. So Lord, what do you want my life to be about now? With I have some more time on my hands now and I still have some energy. How, how do you want me to... Use this. What do you want me to be devoting this to? Some people in their 60s are asking, looking back on their life, they're asking what it, what it was all for, all those years of working so hard. Did I hit the target? Did I hit the bullseye? What, what should my retirement years look like? How am I going to fill up those years? What kinds of activities? How can I maximize these remaining years of health and energy For the things that matter most. What role can we have in pouring good things into the lives of any grandchildren that the Lord might bless us with? And I hear great things about the grandparenting phase. Looking forward to that. (laughs) By far better. The person I talked with last week said, If I would known how good grandkids were, I would have just skipped having kids and went straight to grandkids. (laughs) Teach us to number our days. When we're in our 70s or 80s, that can mean what can I do during however remaining days I have left to leave a lasting spiritual legacy, right? To outlive myself, to make a significant contribution, to point the people I care about in the right direction. See, this culture we live in seems to scream at us, live for the moment. Do what feels good to you right now. To hell with the implications of those choices or the consequences of those choices. That seems to be the message of our culture. But Moses, a man who at one point, remember this, got closer in proximity to God than anybody else has ever been. Who is now, at the time of this writing, probably 90-ish. Moses contends that there's great wisdom in taking the longer view of life, in transporting yourself to the end of your life, and from that vantage point asking, what would I want to be able to say at the end of my life about the way I lived my years while I was here? Speaking of 90-year-olds, maybe you heard about that survey of 90-year-olds, nonagenarians, That's the technical term, 90-year-olds, nonagenarians. There was a survey done, it's been a few years now, of a bunch of uh, 90-year-old people. Imagine. But that's pretty exciting. And a group of them were asked this, if you had it to do all over again, you're 90 now, you've lived nine decades, if you had it to do all over again, if you could live your life all over again, what would you do differently? That's a good question for people at that stage, huh? And their answers fell into three categories, and we can learn from them. They basically said this, if we could do it all over again, we would reflect more, we would risk more, and we would do more things that we knew would outlive us. That's what they said. These 90-year-olds. They said, we would reflect more if we could do it all over again. We would be much more acutely aware of the passing of time and how we spent our days and who we spent them with, and we would set aside time to stop and think about the choices that we were making. If that's really how we wanted to live our lives, we would reflect more. They said we would risk more, not jumping off of buildings, not take more death-defying risks, but but just being more willing to take some chances in life without being paralyzed by fear and not knowing what the outcome would be. I think it was the the hockey star Wayne Gretzky who said, you'll miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. (laughs) If we had it to do over again, they said we'd reflect more, we'd risk more, and then they said we would do more things that will outlive us. We'd spend a good amount of time and effort and energy thinking about and striving to create something of significance that will outlast us. Because they said it went pretty fast. Let's just acknowledge that there's a lot of wisdom to be had in numbering our days before we reach an age where we can't do much changing. If you are in your 20s, or 30s, or 40s, or 50s, or even 60s here today, I would urge you to to take this kind of inventory of your life now while you can still make changes that could alter the course of your life. The final section of this psalm is is a, a plea. It's a prayer plea. We see Moses pleading with Yahweh to renew his favor once again, towards his people. I can envision that old, grisly old prophet thinking forward, envisioning the people of God after all those years of wandering, finally entering the land of promise, the land that was flowing with milk and honey, as it says, finally able to enjoy the blessings of the covenant that God had ratified with Abraham 500 years earlier. Moses' prayer here tells us, number three, that it is the steadfast love of the Lord that is the ground, the basis of our satisfaction and our joy and our hope. Verse 13 again, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants, compassion, literally, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Another translation, your unfailing love, your hesed love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work or your deeds be shown to your servants and your glorious power or your splendor to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This perspective on where happiness in life comes from and where satisfaction in our work comes from, again, I think is countercultural in our day. Our culture says, you got to make it happen. If it's going to happen, you got to pull it off. But Moses acknowledges here that the true source of this is God. Yes, we do the work, we have a part, effort is required, but it is God who, do you see it, establishes the work, makes it meaningful, makes it significant, makes it impactful. And when his people acknowledge God as their source, when they seek his favor over their lives, then Moses says, succeeding generations, your children and your children's children will have every reason to see that and glorify God for his mighty power. On that same prayer retreat, even though I saw it wasn't going very well, I posed some more thought-provoking questions based on these final verses from this wonderful psalm. Questions like this. Describe the most deeply satisfying experience or season that you've ever had in your life? When was that? And how was God involved in it? Think of an expression of God's unfailing love for you that would prompt you to rejoice and be glad all the rest of your days. What could God do from his love for you that would just set your heart to singing? What percentage of your days so far would you call days of affliction and what percentage would you call days of gladness? What are your thoughts when you think about that ratio? If you were given the opportunity to relive one day from your life, which day would you choose? That's an interesting thought, isn't it? If you could relive one day, which day would it be and why? Why? if all of your days were laid out in snapshots in front of you, which one would you select as your very best day of gladness? Oh yeah, that one. June of 1987 or whatever. And which would you choose as your worst day of affliction? And looking back, what can you learn from those two days? How about this one? What deeds of God, Moses spoke of the deeds of God, what deeds of God have you seen during your lifetime? Recall five incidents or events that you're convinced were his doing. Could you do that? Five deeds of God. How would you like to see the Lord reveal his splendor to your children? As it says, what's in your heart for your kids, for your children? What is it that you're beseeching the Lord for day in, day out, week in and week out for your children as they grow older. What work of your hands do you deeply desire for God to establish? And what stage is that work in? Is it in its embryonic stages, just the thinking stages, or is it in process, almost done? And how might that work bring glory to God? Well, it didn't go over very well with our team that day, but I'm hoping it'll go over good with you guys. So I put it on the back of your outline for you so that when you go on your own personal retreat in 2018, you take that sheet with you. Take an hour, hour and a half. It'll take that long and walk through this. We've all heard that old axiom, right? The unexamined life is not worth living. There's some truth to that. But here's the Bible version. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I really believe that if you and I will will choose by God's grace and at His prompting to to be fearless and to take this kind of personal inventory of our lives, not only will we perhaps stand out a a bit more from the rest of the world, buck the trend of living just for the moment, but maybe, just maybe, The long-term impact of us making God our main hope instead of ourselves will leave a mark in this world that will far outlive us and bring a lot of glory to Jesus Christ. And I know that's something that in our best moments, our most godly moments, we all really want. Let's pray together. Lord, what a beautiful piece of scripture this is, that you prompted your servant Moses to write thousands of years ago, and yet, as we walk through it, it doesn't feel outdated or not relevant. To me, it feels right up to the moment. Lord, I pray that uh, we in this room would not live unexamined, unevaluated lives that we would pause from time to time and ask ourselves these questions about our days, our days that we've lived up to this point and the days that lay ahead of us. And I feel prompted to just thank you for our days. Thousands of people did not wake up this morning. They flew away. Their spirits did. But Lord, you gave us another day of life, to use, to live for your glory, to serve you, to love you, to make a difference in this world by how we lived. Would I pray that we would view our days as a, an entrustment from you, a stewardship from you, Lord, and that we would be conscious of letting your spirit who lives in us live the life of Christ out through us. Lord, whether we're 20 years old in this room today, a 20-something or a 30-something, or maybe on the upper end of that scale, God, I pray that you would enable us to gain wisdom from numbering our days where change is needed. Lord, maybe minor adjustments, tweaking, or maybe major course corrections. Lord, I pray you'd give us the power and strength through your spirit and your word and your people to do it so that on that day, when we stand before you, We'll be so glad that we did. I do pray that you multiply the days of gladness for your people and give them far more days of gladness than days of affliction for their good and for your glory. I pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.